following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 7, 1 to 6. Judge not that you not be judged. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and getting people here safely. God, we pray um, that this time would be well worth it, that your spirit would meet us here. As we look through the gospel, we see that one of the main things that Jesus did in his ministry was give sight to the blind, and this morning, we're asking, God, that you would give us sight, spiritual sight, to see uh, what your design for our life is, what your will would be for our lives. Help us to lean into that, to embody righteousness as your disciples. Teach us to walk according to your paths, Father God, and would this be a time that would be encouraging for us, um, instructional for us, help us to grow into the likeness of Christ. We ask this morning um, that you be near to us. Pray that you help me speak with precision, with authority from the Spirit. God, would you soften our hearts to receive, unstop our ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and we pray this all in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. I'm gonna cut right to it today. Is that all right with you? All right, I'm gonna cut right to it. None of this fluffy stuff. This sermon, three ways that you might be ruining your MC. How's that for a title? Three ways that you might be ruining your MC. Now some of it, now I'm gonna say, unknowingly, you might be unknowingly ruining your MC, but three, three likely ways you might be ruining your MC. Now this sounds kinda of cheery, right? It's like a, just one of those sermons that's gonna warm your soul on this nice snowy day. But the irony of this is that today's passage, Jesus says, Judge not. And you're thinking, if you're, if you're thinking sharply this morning, you're thinking, well, Pastor Sam, it seems like you're judging me right now. You just told me what I'm doing wrong. That might be the case. But to know for sure, we're gonna dig into God's word and start unpacking it, uh, beginning with verses one and two of Matthew chapter seven. We've been preaching uh, verse by verse through the book of Matthew, actually through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, listening to what Jesus says. And th- this is said to be um, the, the touchstone. It's, it's like the, the, what do you call it? The, the source water. What do you call it where the river starts? What's that called? The headwater, bingo. It said that the Sermon on the Mount is the headwater and everything else from the New Testament trickles down from it. That Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God and then everything else coming beyond that in the New Testament is working out of applying that teaching that Jesus has. Now, I'm gonna need you to open your Bibles this morning, all right? Because I'm not making this stuff up. There's a pew Bible in front of you, page 474. That's where you'll find it. It'll be up on the screen, too, if you're feeling lazy today. I won't judge you, though, because you got here. I appreciate that. But I, do, I did some cleaning in my, in my office, and I, uh, I have this really nice uh, Christian standard Bible. It's not my preferred translation, but it's a great translation. Somebody wants a nice Bible, I want to give this to you. So meet me up there. I'll give it to you. I like giving away stuff. It's like a door prize or something. All right, let's start with verse one. The words of Jesus say, judge not that you be not judged. Now this is one of those verses that it seems like everybody, especially every non-Christian, has this Bible verse memorized, right? Just do a survey of pop culture, right? Visit a a little bit of Tupac, right? Look Look at some of the most recent tattoo ink that's been put on the skin, what's it say? Only God can judge me. 
Right? Everybody knows this verse. Now, this seems like an odd passage, an odd scripture to memorize and to celebrate. Because if you really understand what's being said here, you'd probably need to go get a new pair of underwear. I'm just going to be straight. It's, it's a little terrifying. It's actually quite ignorant to celebrate. Only God can judge me because what you're telling me is that you will stand before a holy God one day and something in you tells you that, oh man, this is gonna go great for me. You won't believe. You're just gonna scoop me on through. But the reality is here, Hebrews 10 tells us that it is a fearful thing for sinners to fall into the hands of a holy God. It's quite terrifying. Now, I think that Tupac is a little bit right when he says only God can judge me. I think he's a little, he's a little bit right. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Apostle Paul steps into a messy church situation with the, the church in Corinth, and he says this in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, God judges those who are on the outside of the church. He's like, well, what part do I have in judging those who are outside of the, the community, the, 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 the covenant of grace? He's like, leave that to God. That's, that's God's business, not ours. No, so as Christians, we should read this and, and say, okay, it's God's job to judge those who are outside of the church. Not mine. I'm not here to hold non-Christians to some sort of Christian ethic, Christian morals. That's not my place. It's up to God that on the last day, everyone will stand before the throne and have to give an account. But if you continue reading through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, actually if you would back up just a few verses, you see something really curious. Because Paul, he goes and he pronounces judgment on a professing Christian who is living in unrepentant sin. And not only does he say, hey, I'm apart from you in spirit, yet from this place I pronounce judgment on this person, he says to them, he instructs the church to remove this person from the church in the power of Jesus. What is going on here? If Jesus says, don't judge, and Paul seems to be getting one part right where he's not judging those who are outside the church, yet he seems to have some, some sort of criticism for those who are inside of the church. How do we make sense of this? Now, skeptics will say, this is exactly why Christians are hypocrites, right? They base their life on a Bible that is faulty, Right? It says one thing and then another thing happens. It's full of all kinds of errors. And, and, and if, if you're thinking that, then, then let me first agree with you in some regard. Yes, Christians have a tendency to be hypocrites. In fact, that's one of the things that Jesus is addressing, is addressing here in the Sermon on the Mount. This hypocrisy that seems to circulate among religious peoples. And, and, and he's been pointing out, actually, today we see a contrast here between one kind of hypocrisy, which has been sort of the, the surface level hypocrisy where um, I would call this the, the non-integrous sort of hypocrisy, where they portray one front, right? They put on a show for people that the external layer looks like they're super pious and, and religious and holy people, but the inside, Jesus says they're empty tombs. They're whitewashed tombs. So, so they don't have the substance that they seem to be showing. Now Jesus has been addressing that in the sermon so far, but now he turns and he addresses a different kind of hypocrisy. The, the, the kind of hypocrite that I would call the unburdened burdeners. These are the hypocrites who don't practice what they preach. In fact, Jesus has really strong words of condemnation for these people in, later on in, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 23. Jesus says, woe to you, you hypocrites. You heap up burdens on people that you yourselves don't even take upon yourself. Paul even addresses this in, in Romans chapter two, right? You're so, you're so quick to preach and pronounce judgment on people but you yourself are guilty of the same thing, homie. Now, so I'll agree with you in the regard that, okay, Christians have this tendency to be hypocritical, but I, I would strongly disagree 
with your assertion that it's because the Bible is faulty or because the Bible has errors. What's actually faulty is our interpretation and because our interpretation is faulty, then our application is also faulty. So when we look at this passage where Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, we have a flattened view, we have a flattened definition of what Jesus means by this word judge. Now in the Greek, this word is krino, and it means to evaluate, discern, decide what is right, to assess, and it carries not only negative connotations, but also positive connotations. That this is part of a, a godly discipline, to be able to discern the the. the, the Proverbs talk about discernment and prudence and being able to decipher what is good and what is evil. And so there's this positive aspect, but our tendency is to look at this, and this is part of the, the weakness of the American, the English, not American language, the English language, which most Americans speak, is to take this word and truncate it to only mean its negative connotation. And then what we do when we truncate the word, then we sort of totalize it in a sense where this must become the one core tenet. This is the one principal idea that everything else in scripture has to run through this filter. And if it doesn't, then, then it's wrong. Now, this is where our, our interpretation of the scripture messes up. Truncated view, misapplication. And we think, right, we, we read this and we say, nobody should judge anybody ever for any reason whatsoever at all, ever. It's like this world is one big planet fitness, the, no, the judgment-free zone. You know what I mean? And that sort of becomes the, the culture's mindset about this passage, this totalizing statement, this general sweeping statement. Now, not only is this wildly unbiblical, but it just doesn't make sense, common sense-wise. For this to, to be what it is, to make it a, a totalizing statement, means that we would have to cut out a lot of our Bibles to come to this conclusion. That we would have to take this one part and elevate it above all of the other parts and dismiss everything that doesn't fit it. But instead, we have to see how the part supports the whole. That's, that's like Bible reading 101. So not only is it unbiblical, but it doesn't make sense, common sense-wise. You'd have to check your reason at the door because if it says do not judge, and judge has this big expanded view, more than the negative connotation, but also the positive connotation, which is what the, the, the Greek text says, then that means you should never evaluate. You should, you should never screen your babysitter. You should never do a background check with an employee that you're about to hire. You should never verify with your financial manager if he's actually embezzling money or helping you build a portfolio. It means that grades are irrelevant, right? If that's what the Bible is saying, common sense gets thrown out the door. Now, we can say that condemnation, the negative part of it, is prohibited. See, because who judges? Only God can judge. God is the one who will judge. Everybody will be brought into the throne and he will judge, but that is not what this passage is saying as far as when it says, do not judge. Jesus is not saying, do not make any sort of critical assessments. Do not evaluate people and their character and their actions or anything that they do. Jesus is saying, however, when you evaluate, when you discern, when you exercise prudence and discernment, do so in a charitable way. Do so fairly. Do it rightly. That's what he gets into in verse two when he says, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, don't use a loaded scale. If, if you're gonna weigh somebody don't hold your thumb down on the scale to give them an inaccurate reading. That, that does just as much disservice as whatever unrighteousness that they do already. Instead, Jesus is saying, like, when you, when you make this assessment, when you're discerning, do so righteously with God's heart and with God's standard. Now, I'm afraid that the word judge still carries a pretty negative connotation with us. That even we hear this as like, I don't want to be judged. I don't want anybody to be critical of me. 
But you have to understand that this is actually a good thing if you want to grow. This is actually a good thing if you want to flourish, if you want to become the the truer and more beautiful version of yourself in Christ. This is a good thing. This is something that we as Christians should want from one another. For a brother and sister to look in at our lives and say, hey, it seems like something's off. It seems like your, your life is out of step with the gospel. It seems like you're insisting on your own way instead of yielding to God. And the reason we should want this is because righteousness is synonymous with flourishing. I could take you back to Psalm 1. There's this contrast of the righteous man and the wicked. And the righteous man flourishes like a tree that's planted by a stream. Abundance, fruit, it's beautiful, right? Righteousness and flourishing are synonymous. And I hope that you want to live the good life, life with the grain that Jesus comes and teaches us. So if that's what you want, if you want to live the best life, not only now, but into eternity, it means that you need godly people speaking into your life. That's a non-negotiable. You need, it's, it's, it's consistent throughout all of the scriptures from old to new. God deals with his people in the context of community. You need people who look in at your life. They can see it for what it is. It's one thing to, to like pull the, you know, to fleece people and say, well, I'm really this really great person. But in reality, you're, you're struggling, you're, you're missing, you're out of step with the gospel. Like people need to see the real you, not some phony version. That way they can step in and love you to identify your blind spots and ultimately lead you into the arms of Jesus. Now, when a missional community is at its best, this is what's happening. When a missional community is functioning at optimum capacity, they are rightly judging the members, not in a condemnation way, but in an assessment way to help you grow further and further into the likeness of Jesus with the aim of your flourishing. Now, if you're new to Sacred City, you don't understand what a missional community is. Here it is, 10,000 foot view, 30,000 foot view. Missional community, it's a group of people, ordinary people, that get together once a week, share a meal, pray together, we study God's word together, but beyond that one time a week gathering, we share our lives in the gospel together, right? We bring our real selves to the table and ask that God would use community to refine us and then send us out on mission. And, and it's crazy, like missional community, it's hard to explain what it is. I, I can give you that little snapshot, but you really can't ex- understand what it is until you step foot in one. And it, it's not just one time. You have to step foot in one, and you probably have to be there for like four or five months before you actually get the whole hang of it. Because it's, it's like one week it could be this, next week could be something completely different. It's a place where people love each other. It's a place where truth is elevated, where the gospel is the biggest thing in our lives. It's a thing where we share our burdens, we serve one another. Like it's, it's this beautiful thing. It's like when a missional community is working right, it's this incredibly captivating, glorious, beautiful thing. In fact, I would say that when a missional community functions as it ought, as it ought to, it functions as an outpost for the kingdom of heaven. Like you could bring somebody in and say, hey, this is a little sneak peek of what heaven's gonna be like, the way that we love each other, the way that we serve each other. Now, that doesn't take away from the fact that like everybody in the room is still a sinner, okay? Everybody's still jacked up. Everybody, everybody brings their mess, their, their, you know, their baggage. It's messy and it's hard. But, but when the gospel is at the center, these missional communities are both durable and beautiful. Gives you a glimpse into heaven. And really, it's a community on a mission. So it's not just, hey, we show up for the sake of community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this in, in Called Together, his, his book, Great, Great Work. It says, like, community for the sake of community will literally self-destruct. There's an aim. There's a target. That's why we have missions together as a missional community. Like, we want to become the most beautiful versions of ourselves in Christ Jesus. So so there's a a point to it. We want want accountability. We want to encourage each other to that goal. Now, it's, it's a really special thing missional community is. But it can be easily ruined by violating what Jesus is teaching here. Missional communities can be tanked when we are judging each other unfairly. Now, it, it, 
it's worth pointing out here when, when Jesus is talking about the whole plank and speck stuff, he, he's, he's, when your brother, he, he's talking about your brother in Christ, right, your spiritual family, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about outsiders, he's not talking about confronting a non-believer in their sin, he's talking about among you. This is, this is like family business. But he goes on, and the implications not only deal with like the family business of our missional communities, but actually it trickles down even further into your marriage, into your relationships at work, in the neighborhood, right, with your kids. It keeps going and going and going, right? If you have this, it's just gonna keep eating away at all these different avenues. Now we're gonna pull up here, and Jesus is gonna show us three ways that you might be ruining your missional community. So let's take a look at verse three. Jesus says, why, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now what's going on here? Homie's got a two by four through his eyeball. And he's worried about a little sliver in his brother's eye. He, he's got this giant thing sticking out of his face and he's got just a little speck of dust and that's what he's worried about. Let me, let me help you out by critiquing this that I see in you. Now the problem with this is that this guy with the two by four in his face, he lacks any kind of credibility, Right? It's like nobody would sign up for a fitness challenge that's hosted by a 500-pound person. It's like, what are you do? You can't tell me what to do. You don't even do your own, right? There's, there's a lack of credibility for what this guy's doing. So, so he's, in a sense, he's expecting for something to happen with this other person that he himself is not being able to deliver in himself. Now, we've got to ask this question, Why? Not just, not just acknowledge the absurdity of this, but to kind of get under it. Why, why would this person take it upon themselves while having a two by four in their face to say, hold still, brother. <laughs> Let me get my tweezers. It's because from his perspective, he sees the inverse. Now, let me back up for a second and unpack this. So the last several sections of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has had this, part of, of his teaching has been in regards to sight. Okay, let me back up. So when Jesus is talking about money, he says the eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are darkened, your soul's gonna be darkened. Jesus goes on to anxiety. He says, hey, the reason you're feeling anxious, here's how you can fight against anxiety. Open your eyes, look at the birds, look at the flowers. There's, there's a sight pattern going on. And again, we see it again. Jesus is dealing with the eyes. Somebody has a plank in his eye, somebody's got a speck. What is he saying? He's getting after the reality that, that sin, okay, so money will blind you, anxiety will blind you, and now we're seeing your sin will blind you to other people's sin, or even your own sin, actually. That sin has this blinding power, just like money, just like anxiety. And if we are blinded by our sin, then we are naturally self-unaware. We have no understanding of our own hearts. Can't understand it. Right, the psalmist says, hey, our hearts are deceitful above all things. Who can comprehend it? I can't. So I got a two by four in my face. This leads us to not being able to see ourselves clearly, and if you can't see yourself clearly, you can't see others clearly. Now this is where the whole like, if you start judging unfairly, it'll boomerang and come back at you. Like it'll be the standard that you get judged by then. And what we do when we, when we sort of, you know, we move in with the plank in our eye trying to get the speck out of our brother's eye, what we're doing is that we're, instead of using God's true scale for righteousness for the both of us, Right, a scale that I'm willing to place myself upon and then also I see you placed upon the same scale. What we're doing is I put my loaded scale out and I have you step on it and I got my thumb down on it. It's a scale that, that's determined by subjectivity, my own preference, my own bias. It's not by God's true standard of righteousness. And at the heart of this 
The intention is to make myself look good while making you look bad. See, this is, this is the number one way that you might be ruining your missional community. When you look at other people's sin, is it a bigger deal to you than your own sin? Do you get more fired up about the way that person is sinning than the own, your own sinfulness of your heart? Now, they might sin differently. They might sin more flagrantly. But if you have this self-righteous, well, you know, it's like Jesus when he says, look, the tax collector who's, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And the tax collector's down on his face, repenting, right? He actually sees himself rightly before God. See, we've just become like the tax collector if that's our response. We see that, glad I'm not like that guy. They might not struggle like, like they might have different struggles than you, but you both struggle. Like sin, sin may manifest in different ways in, in their life and your life, but you both are standing on even level ground here, right? The ground before the cross is level ground. Everyone's a sinner. Now the minute you start doing that, the minute you start having this, this attitude of, I'm glad I'm not that, that person, I'm glad I don't struggle that way, you're starting to puff yourself up with pride, with self-righteousness. And what happens, it eventually hardens you, actually. It, it, like people will, will perceive you as this hard and, and, and swift, harsh judger, but also it, it's gonna simultaneously harden your heart. It makes you harsh. It makes you quick to judge. And in the sense, you're losing God's heart, right? This, this is not true righteousness. This is not true judgment, godly judgment. You, you don't have God's heart. You don't see clearly. And so in this case, if your missional community has one person like this or multiple people like this, right, your, your missional community is gonna feel cold. It's gonna be, feel like a very graceless, compassionless community. It feels like everybody's running low on patience, just looking at their watch, like, when, when are you gonna get it together? And people step into it, and it's like, I don't wanna go back there because I feel like I was just judged the whole time. In order for a missional community to, th- to thrive, we must be humble, self-aware, non-condemning gospel people. And this means that I have to understand my sin first, right? The, the person's sin who most bothers me in the room should be my own sin. Like like Paul, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. Paul wrote half the New Testament. How can he say that? It's because he understands the gospel. The gospel tells him he's worse than he thought. He had more love than he ever dared to dream. See, this is what we have to have, this, this understanding that I'm a sinner just like that person. Our sin might be different, but I'm not in a position to condemn. If I do that, then I am I'm condemning myself. So in your missional community, if you're moving towards flourishing, one of the things is that you're gonna have this universal awareness that we're all sinners. Everybody. Shouldn't be a shock to anybody, right? But this can easily spill into the second way of ruining your missional community. Because what happens is, when we start realizing that everybody is a sinner, we start kind of bargaining in sort of a, a, a subliminal way. Okay, so it's like this. Well, I won't call you out on, my, on your sin if you don't call me out on my sin. Right? I, I won't talk about that if you promise not to talk about this. And, and actually, this is happening in your marriages too, right? You show up as a married couple in the mission community and, and stuff's getting kind of worked out and you start sort of like, hey, you stay quiet. If you stay quiet, I'll stay quiet. We're not going there. It's exactly how it materializes. And what happens is we call these truces and then we start sweeping sin under the rug and we, we sort of gate this uh, immunity, this, this tolerance to sin where we don't see it as the lion that it is. That when God's talking to Cain, he's like, sin is crouching at your door ready to devour you. Instead, we're like, oh, it's a pretty kitten. Now, this is what Jesus is getting at in verse five here. This is, this is really important to see. So he says, hey, why do you see this? You know, you see the... the you got a log in your eye, you got a speck, why are you concerned with his speck? But then he says this, verse five, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, 
and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is not saying, why don't you guys go ahead and leave those planks in your eyes? That's not what he's saying. He said, first, like, there's, there's a purpose here. First, take out the plank in your eye, and then you can help your brother remove his. Planks are meant to be taken out. Sin is meant to be killed, not coddled. There is no place in the church for the elevation of sin, for the welcoming of sin in a way that just will breed more and more and more sin. This is why the writer of Hebrews in in chapter 10 says, spur one another on in love and good deeds. He's not saying, hey, be, be okay with the status quo. Spur one another on. This is where we see Peter get confronted by Paul in the book of Galatians. Peter's out of step with the gospel, right? We're talking about like the rock on which the church was built. You know, if Peter can mess up, like it means you and me can mess up too. And Paul looks at Peter and says, hey, uh, you're kind of like, you forgot the gospel, bro. And, and he speaks the gospel. He reminds him of the gospel. So we see there in, in like godly relationships within the context of the church community, there is this accountability. There is this godly confrontation that we ought to expect because Jesus wants us to take the speck out of each other's eyes. He doesn't want to call a truce with it. Now if a missional community starts calling a truce, if a missional community start, stops calling people out on their sin and just say, uh, you know, you go, you do you then we are losing our Christian identity as a church. We forget who we are. God has called us out to be a holy people, his treasured possession, a distinct people. That we are to have a righteousness, a true righteousness that contrasts the rest of the world. Now, okay, if I, if I take you back to 1 Corinthians Chapter five, once again, that that scenario that I was laying out at the beginning. Paul says, hey, let God deal with the outsiders. He'll judge them. And then he he turns around and says, okay, this this professing Christian, I I judge them and I encourage the church to do the same. Paul is actually upset with the church while this is happening because they are enabling this so-called Christian to continue on in their sin in a way that voids out the Christian witness of their community. So people are looking in and it's like, what's the deal with these Christians? They're just as bad as the rest of the world. Well, Paul says you can't do that. You've been distinct, you've been made holy. Set him out, he says, a little leaven ruins the whole lump. He says, church, you you can't go on tolerating sin because sin will spread, it's like bacteria, it's an infection, it'll eat away and gnaw away, and before you know it, you'll be left with the carcass of the church. In Romans 2, Apostle Paul addresses this again. It's like, after talking about God's mercies, he's like, should we keep on going sinning? Should we continue to live in unrepentant sin, doing our own thing our own way? By no means, he says. Don't let sin fester. Don't let sin just eat away at your community. He goes on to say, say this. He says, hey, when you presume upon God's grace, you are actually storing up wrath for yourself. That's scary. To presume upon God's grace, to keep taking advantage of it, is going to mean that you have to answer for it later on. Therefore, I must first hold myself accountable to God's word. This is where self-discipline comes from, self-control, fruit of the spirit. I hold myself, I take responsibility for my own discipleship, and I do to it. And one of the ways you do this is instead of reading your Bible, you let your Bible read you. That's what Martin, Luther, or Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Let your Bible read you. Let, let your Bible be the one that kind of snoops around and, and puts your fi- its finger in the places where you're out of step with God's will, out of step with God's way for flourishing. If you don't read your Bible like that, you're not reading your Bible. You're just using it as a to- tool to like sort of prop yourself up. That's not how righteous people use the Bible. 
I gotta be accountable to God's word for myself, and then, and then, I'm ready to approach my brother. Now, in doing so, there ought to be some humility to this. Because I just came from the woodshed. Like, Jesus just had me out back, told me where I messed up. And he gave me grace, got the grace. Now I go to my brother and say, hey, I see that you're out of step with gospel. I'm concerned about this. Seems like I'm more concerned about this than you are. Let me, let me help you see what's going on here. And then you confront them graciously with truth and love and then lead them to the gospel if they're willing to go. If they're repentant, they're ready to go to the gospel. Now, I'm gonna bring it home with the, first, uh, the, the third one, so let me just recap. So the first way that you're ruining your mission community is you're treating other people's sin as a bigger deal than your own sin. Second way is that you're calling a truce with sin. Everybody's sin is cool with us. We're not gonna check it at all. Now the third way, the third way that you might be ruining your mission communities is found right here in verse six. This is kind of a confusing passage, so hang on, buckle up. It's really ironic, the fact that Jesus says don't judge and then he calls people pigs and dogs, so. It says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Now what is going on here? What's he talking about? Now, now just think about this. What do pigs and dogs do? Dog sees a shoe. You got, you got a new pair of Jordans. Dog's gonna get it. He's gonna bite it. Gonna chew on it. He's not gonna eat it. Can't really digest it. Gonna chew on it. Probably pee on it. Mark his territory. Pigs will do the same thing. They'll see it. They don't see the value of it. Like they don't see that this is a $200 pair of shoes. They just chew on it. To them it's a chew toy. They, they neglect it for what the value is. They can't see the value of what's before them and they trample over it. They chew it up, spit it out. It's not of use to them. There's no nutritional value, right? Like throw a pearl before a hog. That's not gonna fill their belly. Here's a third way to ruin your mission community and this is kind of like a, a part one, part two thing here. These are Jesus' words, not mine. The third way that you're gonna ruin your missional community is that you're confronting people who are acting like pigs and dogs. You're confronting the wrong people. You're confronting people who can't see the value of living a righteous life, life with the grain, life hand in hand with Jesus. Now, this actually isn't meant to be a critique on, on the people who are having doggish and piggish tendencies. Right, although I think that that can, you know, like if you have Christians in your mission community, people who are professing Christians, sort of like the scenario of, of 1 Corinthians 5, professing Christians who are resistant to any sort of uh, correction, any sort of assessment, any sort of like pushback confrontation, right, th that person is acting piggish. They're acting like a dog. They, they don't wanna hear what you have to say. They're, they chew it up, spit it out, no use. And in that, they're basically giving God and his people the finger, I'm just gonna say it. It's like, I don't, wanna, I don't care what you say. And, and actually, there's a point in a mission community where we have to realize who's being like that. This is part of actually like being good at judging, judging rightly, to be able to say, is this person, do they seem like good soil or not? Now, this doesn't mean that we're stingy. Like, we're still gonna give them the gospel. We're not gonna withhold it from them. But there's gonna be this thoughtfulness. We're gonna engage our minds a little bit. Is this person just being ignorant? And if they're being ignorant, we can let them do their own thing. It's not gonna go well for them. It's not. Because this is what eventually happens when sin is overrunning a person's heart. It's just gonna drive them into their own despair. So if you're acting like this, maybe that's a wake-up call. If you're acting doggish, you're acting piggish, maybe this is a wake-up call. But, but really what Jesus is trying to get at here it isn't those who are acting piggish and doggish. His target are the people who are actually laying the pearls before them, those who are laying what's holy before them. He's saying like, if you keep trying to do this, there's a, a chance that you're gonna take the Bible and you're gonna use it as a weapon. 
You're gonna use it to beat somebody up with it. You're, you're, you're just constantly nagging and, and badgering them. And what happens with that person, they're already resistant to you. They get harder and harder and harder. Now some people, they're gonna hear it, they're gonna wake up. It's like the same sun that melts the ice will harden the clay. But there are gonna be some people who hear it, they don't wanna hear it. And they don't just trample on it, they come and they attack you. Oh, you were so mean to me, you don't know nothing, you don't know who I am. Like, they just come back and they, they're like full on trying to get you. And eventually, they'll just push away. You blow out, there'll be some sort of drama that happens in the missional community, they'll end up walking away, never, never see them again. So Jesus says here, exercise discernment. Okay, now this is where things get complicated here. There, there's a lot of nuance because we're not to be condemning. We're not to be people who tolerate sin, but somewhere we hold these things in tension and we discern, are these people receptive to this pearl that I have for them? Are they gonna take it and treasure it? Are they gonna hold fast to it like it's the most beautiful treasure in the world? Or are they gonna just... Thanks, but no thanks. Now, one of the tendencies that we have is when we experience somebody like this that seems to just take what we have to say as a community, and I mean like, like a godly, gentle, gracious, yet truthful, honest community, we take those things and throw them away. It's easy for us, if we're the ones who are trying to lay down these pearls, to get upset. It's easy for us to get irritable and impatient. It's easy for us to say, come on, pig! What are you doing? Right? But listen, in that moment, you are forgetting that you were once a pig too. In that moment, you've forgotten how resistant your heart is toward God. Now the gospel is the good news that God doesn't give up on pigs. God doesn't just let dogs go, right? Even there's a woman who comes to Jesus and he's on a mission to go heal this young girl and this woman comes to him and says, hey, can you heal me, heal me, heal me? And she says, no, 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 I gotta go tend to this lady. And she goes, but, but, but don't even crumbs fall to the, the dogs? And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. See, Jesus has grace for those who are piggish and doggish. In fact, there would be no other way for us to become kingdom people unless God had a grace for doggish people. At one point, we resisted the gospel. Our hearts were hardened to God. We said, no, no, I don't. I like this plank in my eye. I like having a two by four in my face. We insist, no, it feels good. It feels right. But it's not until we understand the patient kindness and grace of Jesus that that plank supernaturally comes out of our eye. Because Jesus, the clear-eyed Jesus, that Jesus, is, who his eyesight is not obstructed in any way, the sinless one, the one who can see perfectly, comes up to us and says, hey, do you want me to get that out of your eye? That, that plank that's in your eye. Would you hold still so I can just take that out? And, and Jesus takes out the plank, he sinks it in the ground, and then he gets up on it. He stretches out his arms. See, that, that plank in your eye that was killing you, that was leading to spiritual blindness, that's on me. He climbs up on the cross. He's nailed there. He's crucified in our place. See, that, that spiritual blindness should have meant that that was us. And Jesus is judged on the cross in our place. And by his grace, our eyes are cleared up. We can see him. We see him as the most beautiful treasure, that Jesus himself is the pearl. We are clothed in his righteousness. 
and have a desire to live all our life under the submission of Jesus because it points to the good life. Romans 8 tells us, for those who are in Christ, there is now no longer any condemnation. If Jesus has pulled the plank out of your eye, he's already taken the judgment. For the Christian, judgment is something that's already happened. It's not a day, I mean, there's gonna be a judgment day and we're gonna stand before the throne and we have to lay out all of the good things and the bad things that we've done and give an account for them. That's gonna happen. But as far as like, are we going to heaven or are we gonna spend eternity apart from God? That's already happened because Jesus did it on the cross. And if you understand that, if you understand the profoundity of what Jesus has done, then you are going to earnestly desire to live the good life and life in in line with the grain and want Jesus' lordship to rule over your life in a way where you actually, maybe timidly, but surely are open to the critique of other people. You're open to hearing your brothers and sisters who love you say, hey man, I I think you're missing something here. It seems like your life isn't reflecting the gospel. Now, if Jesus isn't that beautiful to you, you don't want that. I'm telling you right now, you're just gonna run. That's gonna happen and you're cut and run and you're out of here. But if Jesus is beautiful to you, then you're willing to open yourself up to the community. And when that happens, you don't have to get defensive, right? Because you can point back to the cross and say, Jesus paid for it already. I'm still a sinner. I've still got these besetting sins. There's stuff that's going on in my life that Jesus is trying to kill in my life, but Jesus has already done it on the cross. Therefore, I I can sort of welcome it. And when somebody says, hey, I see that that you're out of step with God, you you can say, brother, you don't know the half of it. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I am sinning, but you don't even know how bad it gets. Because my sin, to me, is the worst thing about me. My sin is the worst thing Not your sin, not their sin, my sin. And Jesus provided a remedy for it. And you can point back to Jesus. And you can welcome it and say, hey, brothers, sisters, I'm open to this. If you see something in me, will you speak up? Will you lovingly speak up and help me see where I'm missing the gospel? And when you do so, you don't just take it from your brothers and sisters, like the people in the room. Like, you receive this as a, a loving act of the Father. See, the Father is the one who, who gives reproof and correction to his sons and daughters. See, that's proof of our adoption. And so we welcome it. So this is the key here. So I told you three things that you're gonna mess up your MC. Here's one thing that's gonna make your MC an awesome MC. If you can keep the gospel at the center. If you can remember that Jesus dealt with your sin, and not only your sin, but everybody else's sin that's in the room, Jesus took it and put Jesus at the center of the room. Not only will that enhance your your affections for one another to grow your worship for Jesus because the gospel becomes that much bigger. It's a pearl that continues in growing in worth and value. This is how we make missional communities that make people say, oh, that kind of tastes like heaven. You can't do it in your own power. It's impossible. It takes a supernatural act for Jesus to pull the plank out, get up on the cross, remind us that there's no condemnation for us, clothe us in his righteousness, and to give us a love for each other. That's all the work of Jesus. We're going to move to the Lord's Supper now. Um, The Lord's Supper does several different things for us. The Lord's Supper First of all, it's for people who understand the glory of the gospel. If you think that this is just a wafer and juice, and honestly, it tastes bad. You don't even want it, to be real. If you just think it's that, this meal's not for you. But if you know that this is a sign that points to the reality, a seal that you belong to Jesus, this is a supernatural meal for your soul that Jesus is present here, he's enabling you, he's reminding you, your sin's already been taken care of, brother. You can confess it freely and repent. Now, I do wanna say this. I wanna go to to 1 Corinthians. So as Paul's dealing with this messy stuff in 1 Corinthians chapter five, we've got a brother who's in sin, he says, hey, 
From what we can tell, he's living in unrepentant sin willingly. It's hard to tell. You know, Jesus is gonna tell us you can judge a tree by its fruit. It looks like his fruit is kind of sour, spoiled. And so Paul goes on in chapter 11 of, of 1 Corinthians, and he says, he's talking about the Lord's Supper itself being an opportunity to judge ourselves. He says, examine yourself so that you do not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In doing so, you are heaping condemnation upon yourself. Let me be really pastoral with you. There are some of you in this room who I care deeply about your souls. And I need to warn you that if you don't see Jesus as the pearl, you're not ready to take this. You might even be a Christian, but, but still insisting on living your own way. You're not ready for this meal. It's gonna do more harm than good. And so let me tell you, brother, sister, right now, whether, whether you're a Christian who is insisting on living in sin or, or you haven't yet met Jesus, instead of taking this, take Jesus this morning. Let him remind you of the gospel. Now, if, you've been, if you're ready to repent, to turn away from your sin, you're ready for the table. But if you're not ready to do that, then you're not ready for the table. Father God, we thank you for the way that you are. You are the just God. There is no such thing as an unjust judgment that comes, yet you are patient with us. You're gracious, you're kind. In fact, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Father God, grow us in that kindness. Give us a vision for our life that is just enraptured by the glorious gospel of Jesus. Help him to be our pearl. This morning as we take uh, the bread and the wine, would you remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus, what he has done to, to, to reconcile us to you so that we would no longer be condemned by our sin. But because of the righteousness of Christ, we're exalted. As we are humbled, we are exalted. God, will you humble us to exalt us in Christ's name, amen. Amen.